My brother keeps a human head in his closet. I hope I don't end up that way. This thing, it's gonna follow you. Somebody gave it to me, and I passed it to you. It could look like someone you know, or it could be a stranger in a crowd. It could look like anyone. Santa Claus only brings presents to them that's been good all year. To the ones that ain't done nothing naughty. All the other ones, all the naughty ones, he punishes you. See Santa Claus tonight, you better run, boy. You better run for your life. one of those chickens you got money to pay for it you paid for it <laughs> no but we're the king's men so you got money not a penny i'll still take that chicken you don't seem to understand the situation i understand that if any more words come pouring out your mouth i'm gonna have to eat every chicken in this room you lived your life for the king you're gonna die for some chickens someone is associated with a pagan deity named Bagul. He consumes the souls of human children. Early Christians believed that Bagul actually lived in the images themselves and that they were gateways into his realm. I am seriously positive these were not here. How would we have, like, just made a campsite in between three piles of rocks just by coincidence? <laughs> you don't think this is strange? Hello, welcome once again to Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews, Volume 4. This is a podcast that is a subsidiary of the Dark Discussions Podcast. Uh, the Dark Discussions Podcast is a podcast that we discuss, five of us usually, a roundtable on a film, critiquing it and dissecting it and talking about it, specifically a genre of film, including sci-fi, horror, thrillers, techno-thrillers, mysteries, and midnight films. Uh, this here, this podcast, Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews, is a spin-off where I, co-host Philip of the Dark Discussions podcast, discuss basically, mostly, boutique label Blu-rays or DVDs. So, for example, uh, when a film from the past, usually from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, is released, I basically will uh, purchase it usually and uh, have a bunch of discs I haven't watched, and I will uh, watch it and review it. And the reason I'm doing that is because these are boutique labels. So, for example, Arrow, Code Red, Cult Epics, Criterion all those type of labels that release these old films that are either forgotten or uh, ignored or aren't owned by major studios and then they are remastered and put out by these boutique labels usually these discs are a little bit more expensive than uh, mainstream Hollywood film but uh, the thing is is otherwise these movies would never be released or re-released to uh, these Blu-rays where the quality is incredibly, uh, I guess, 
I wouldn't say, yeah, fantastic. They're usually fantastic with dozens and dozens of extras and giving a film that uh, usually wouldn't get much respect a new life with uh, new respect. And uh, they usually are cult films, uh, specifically uh, similar to uh, what I said, what Dark Discussion does, uh, except older films. So horror and fantasy and midnight movies and exploitation films and whatnot, and they get remastered and re-released and uh, are now uh, um, able to be viewed in uh, top pristine quality with fantastic extras usually. And uh, this here, uh, tonight, I hope to do a number of uh, reviews. Uh, so I've uh, grabbed a handful of discs over the past couple of weeks or since the last episode, Volume 3 had been released, and have uh, chosen a few, watched them, and are going to review them here and now. Um, I do want to um, thank a couple of folks. Uh, uh, first off, uh, one of our listeners, David Koning, uh, specifically stated that um, he enjoyed the podcast tremendously uh, once again, and he actually had an interesting... Uh, thing where it, he said about it but unfortunately it was on Facebook and as we know those things scroll away and you can never find them again uh, but he basically said that uh, this podcast was similar to that after a big dinner at a party where there's a gentleman in the back near a fireplace smoking a cigarette and drinking whiskey in a suit and tie um, is uh, surrounded by a number of folk listening intently as the gentleman speaks uh, meaning um, uh, the, the the gentleman is talking about subjects of note or interest for these folks. And, uh, yeah, you get it. I think everybody understands what he meant. Um, he could say it much better than me because I'm just trying to remember it. But uh, basically, um, uh, a, a man of wisdom with a martini in his hand uh, discussing film and film theory. Uh, and uh, he said uh, that's what it kind of reminded of him of, and he enjoyed it tremendously. Uh, also, um, author uh, extraordinaire, M.J. Preston, which you can find his books on uh, online uh, retailers. I won't say the, the big name one because they have been very bad to independent filmmakers as well as boutique labels recently and uh, they do not deserve uh, to be mentioned. But wherever you buy books online, you can find M.J. Preston's uh, novels and short story collections. Uh, but he did uh, say uh, a pretty cool thing about this uh, podcast, and this is what he had to say. He goes, hey, Philip, I listened to your podcast the other day on psychotronic films and enjoyed it immensely. I grew up in that era and watched a lot of those films, including some of the black exploitation films. It was kind of like a walk through memory lane. Keep them coming. So uh, we would like to thank MJ Preston. Um, and uh, I believe he's referring to episode three of Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews, where one of the films uh, that I did review was... Um, the Black Gestapo by Lee Frost, uh, director of numerous uh, exploitation and midnight films. And uh, I do know I mentioned him in passing later on in this episode based off of uh, one of the films I uh, review and critique tonight. 
uh, or today or whenever you are actually listening to this podcast. Uh, though uh, this intro I'm recording at nighttime. Uh, so I guess we can probably get into um, the the movies, but uh, I did have a question uh, generally from co-host Eric of the Dark Discussions podcast asking me why I named this Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews. And I kind of did answer it on one of the episodes of Dark Discussions, but um, I'll go in a little bit better detail here or for folks who don't listen to Dark Discussions that are just curious and have found this podcast. Um, basically, um, it was originally going to be um, the Halloween Type People podcast. Uh, sounds pretty stupid, but it was a running, little running joke that the Dark Discussions podcast had in the past where um, we're talking about podcast names. And I said, we could just call ourselves Halloween type people because that's all we talk about is horror films. And uh, that kind of stuck with me. And uh, so uh, I was going to name it that, but then um, I, I didn't think it was specific enough to uh, the topic, which is um, cult films. So I uh, decided to use, uh, as co-host Mike of Dark Discussion said, uh, one of Phil's words of the day, which is boutique. And uh, the boutique lit that when one of the uh, um, critiques that I do tonight. Uh, but um, I so I decided to um, name or add the word psychotronic because that pretty much uh, means cult films. So psychotronic reviews. So. Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews, and uh, this is Volume 4. Uh, so um, let's uh, get into some of the reviews, and uh, any feedback, uh, you know where to reach me, darkdiscussions at AOL.com, and also darkdiscussion1 on Twitter. And uh, let's begin. The film that I'm reviewing is a film uh, released by a company called Kino Lorber. Kino Lorber. Uh, they have a website, K-I-N-O-L-O-R-B-E-R. I will read a little bit about the company from Wikipedia, since I'm really not too familiar with them, even though I do have a number of their discs. Um, the official name of the company is Kino International, founded in 1977 by a guy named Bill Pence. However, a guy named Donald Krim bought the company out immediately and served as president until his death until 2011 from cancer. They are based out of New York City in the USA and specialize in art house films, low budget current films, classic films from earlier periods and world cinema. Similar in aspects to the Criterion Collection, uh, the home video releases by Kino are usually restored versions with substantial supplementary material. Um, that is somewhat true. Um, they are not as thorough with extras as Criterion Collection, but uh, they do have fairly decent extras usually. They are very eclectic in what they release. For example, they do release numerous films from the 1950s, specifically science fiction and horror films. Uh, some examples of uh, films would be an episode of Dark Discussions podcast where we did an episode on The Phantom from 10,000 Leagues. Also, uh, various other genre films of note that they've released uh, are The Queen of Blood, which is a really damn good science fiction film from the 60s, Roger Corman production, uh, Burnt Offerings, 
the Oliver Reed film, uh, the Oblong Box. Um, they've released uh, Yongari Monster from the Deep. They've released uh, Gog, uh, the science fiction film from the 50s. Uh, they released uh, Transformations, which is a science fiction film, I believe, from the 80s, which is a pretty good release. I have that one. Uh, the Vikings they released, which I think is a Kirk Douglas film, but I would have to research that. Um, they released uh, Monster Dog, Panic in Year Zero, uh, The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, and many, many others. So uh, they, they do focus on a lot of uh, genre pictures um, and remaster them and release them to the masses. Um, now, um, for this film here, this film is a, a curious film, and uh, let me give you the name of it. It's called They're Playing With Fire, and that film was just released by Kino Lorber within the past month or and a half or so. Uh, it's a film from another time, obviously, 1984, believe it or not, so it is already uh, 33 years old, which is absolutely insane to think that. Um, it's a film stars a uh, uh, couple of noted genre folk as well as various others. Uh, for example, the lead actress and probably the lead of the film is Sybil Danning, and we'll talk about her in a little bit. Uh, her co-lead is a guy named Eric Brown. Then uh, a big genre favorite, Andrew Prine, is also in this film as well. Uh, those are probably the three people of note. Uh, that would be in this film. There is an uh, actress, K.T. Stevens, who was a pretty good um, glamour actress from bygone days way back in the 30s, 40s, and so forth, and even in the um, uh, somewhat uh, in the 60s. And she actually has a small role here as well, uh, K.T. Stevens. Um, now, uh, let me read the back jacket of this before uh, I talk about some of the folks uh, involved in the film and whether it's any good and how the remastering looks and so forth. Um, this is what it says at the back jacket of the Kino Lorber release of They're Playing With Fire. Newly remastered in HD, drive-in goddess and 80s action queen Sybil Danning of such films as The Howling 2, Chained Heat, Reform Schoolgirls, stars as a lusty college professor who seduces a naive student, Eric Brown, from private lessons, as part of a sordid plot to frame him for the murder of her wealthy in-laws. But in a world of passion and deceit, not everything is what it seems to be. Andrew Prine, the centiphobe girls, uh, where he played the villain in that film, Paul Clemens, The Beast Within, and soap star K.T. Stevens, The Young and the Restless, co-star in this deliciously sleazy mix of sex and violence that Mr. Skin hails as one of the weirdest entries in the genre, combining hormone, force, hormone farce antics with slasher movie elements, and of course Sybil's sumptuous sax, co-written and directed by Howard uh, Vedas of uh, the horror film Mortuary. Uh, special features include an, a 30-minute interview with star Sybil Danning and, of course, the trailers and such. A uh, 96-minute film and uh, color, and it's uh, uh, 1.85 by 1 
presentation, uh, which basically means on your um, flat screen TV, it fits the screen perfectly. Uh, the film is a curiosity uh, because it is um, lopped into many different genres because of various things that happen. First off, the marketing for the film is crazy. Um, it was marketed, uh, if you just look at the jacket cover or the, the poster of the movie, it is marketed as a sex comedy, sex teen comedy almost. Uh, you know, they have the, the teacher at her desk with uh, her stocking showing, which is the actress Sybil Danning, and the student, Eric Brown in this case, sitting at a desk looking up at her in awe. And uh, that reminds me of every teen, sex teen comedy from the 1980s and even the 70s. Uh, so it's definitely not marketed correctly. Um, it's listed by uh, places such as Wikipedia, and things of that nature as a horror thriller and so no comedic elements at all uh, this is not a comedy I mean they do have some funny lines here and there but this is not a comedy at all uh, I would call it personally I would call it a thriller with horror elements because there is some shocking violent moments uh, but also the film could be um, grouped in as an exploitation midnight movie as well. Um, so we talk a little bit about uh, the folks um, in front of the camera first. Uh, Sybil Danning. Sybil Danning is a German actress who had a very big career back in the 70s. Um, I first saw her at the movie theaters when I was a young kid when my uh, first cousin brought me to see Battle Beyond the Stars, which is a Roger Corman film um, that was came out quickly after Star Wars, uh, similar to what Roger Corman usually does. He comes up with a good idea, tries to uh, make a, a film quickly, and puts it out um, to follow the tales of what's hot at the time. And with Alien and Blade Runner and um, Star Wars coming out, there you go. Uh, here's a battle beyond the stars, and uh, she plays. Uh, a sex pot alien there who's also a warrior. Um, back in the 70s and early, or I should say late 60s, she was in a number of exploitation films as well as um, uh, giallos, uh, giallos meaning Italian films that are slashers. Uh, that's their term for slashers. Uh, I've explained what a giallo is in a prior episode of Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews. Uh, so some of the films that she's done, um, she did a film called The Long Swift Sword of Siegfried in 1971, which is a sexploitation film, um, fantasy film, um, based off of uh, German and Norse mythology, basically the Nibelungen, uh, Richard Wagner type stuff, and uh, that one has a lot of um, nudity in it. You can find that on... Um, sometimes on Amazon, but you can order it directly from Something Weird Video, which uh, sells it as a DVR, uh, basically a DVD that is um, recorded immediately and mailed out to you. I have a copy of it. I have not seen it yet. Uh, she's done the Giallo's Eye in the Labyrinth, uh, The Red Queen Kills Seven Times. Um, both of them have just been re-released, I believe, within the past year. 
and I think I have both of those. Uh, I definitely know I do have the Red Queen Kills Seven Times, which has just recently been released by Arrow. And uh, I and the Labyrinth, I believe, is a, f a red, code red release. Uh, she was in uh, the film Bluebeard with uh, uh, Richard Burden. And she did a number of films with Raquel Welch back in the 70s. Uh, then, uh, to be taken more seriously, in other words, leaving the genre, exploitation, drive-in movies, films, she uh, produced with her own money and financing a film called Operation Thunderbolt, which happened to be, uh, I believe, uh, considered an Israeli production for the fact that uh, some of the investors came from there. And that film actually was nominated for numerous Academy Awards, and it stars her and Klaus Kinski. Um, and so with that film, she uh, appeared that she was going to be a considered a serious actress going forward. She moves to Hollywood and uh, immediately is cast as an exploitation actress once again in the U.S. of A. So uh, she did, was not able to cross over to, um, I guess, lead dramatic roles in, I guess, what Hollywood co would call or critics would call more serious films. I'll uh, talk a little bit more about um, the extra, uh, her interview on the disc when we get to that. Um, also, uh, actress Andrew Prine, who played uh, the villain in Centerful Girls. This film is um, written all up in the, the book Nightmare USA by Stephen Thrower and uh, talks about uh, his great performance in that. And since uh, he has always been doing uh, a lot of genre pitches, uh, including such films as Crypt of the Living Dead, um, uh, Nightmare Circus, uh, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, Grizzly, Amityville Part 2, Eliminators, and so forth. So uh, he's, he's uh, a lot of thrillers, a lot of horror films, and uh, most people would say that his uh, fantastic role in Centerfold Girls is probably his most important. Um, and then the lead actor, the other lead actor uh, that plays the, the young uh, college kid is a guy named Eric Brown. As stated, he um, was uh, at least early in his career a go-to for these type of films. The younger uh, person uh, attracted to the um, older woman. Um, and oddly, uh, his prior film of no private lessons stars actress Sylvia Crystal, who um, Sybil Danning does talk about and how she uh, turned her career as a mirror image, uh, not a mirror image, as a clone of S Crystal, uh, Sylvia Crystal's career, but here in the U.S. of A. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, now, this film is most certainly a thriller. Uh, basically, um, unlike uh, some of the films back in the day, uh, 80s, um, this film, I guess, is not as as uh, controversial or uncomfortable in its topic because both leads are adults in the film. In other words, their characters are adults. It's not like a high school kid um, having an affair with 
a teacher. It's a college senior um, and he having an affair with his 31-year-old professor. So, um, which is, is not necessarily uncommon. Um, a lot of colleges, uh, some have, have banned this, but a lot of colleges, probably most colleges, uh, professors and teachers can date since they are adults. Uh, and that's what the case in this film here. And uh, what it is, is uh, Sybil Danning's character as a woman that teaches at this um, Ocean State University, I think it's called. It, it's, a, it's not a real um, college, obviously. And um, she hires this kid in her class that she kind of knows that uh, will, may like her a bit as a... Um, um, a painter. She she is basically married uh, um, a guy named Michael Stevens, played by Andrew Prine, who is a multimillionaire but also a professor at the university as well. And so she, they're filthy rich people, and she owns a yacht, and she hires him, Eric Brown's character, play, uh, entitled Jay Richard, to come and um, paint. Uh, or varnish some some of the deck and so forth, and from there they have an affair, and then there's a big plot where Michael and Deanne want the uh, Michael's parents to move out of the mansion, family mansion, uh, not the parents, but the mother and the grandmother, the only remaining um, family members, to move out of the family mansion to basically an old folks' home. Um, and they basically bring on uh, Eric Brown's character, Jay Richard, to help out. Uh, from there, things go drastically wrong, and what we have is a murder mystery um, and so forth. There's a few side plots. There is a ex-girlfriend of uh, Jay, who is basically a stalker, um, and she wanted to move in with him. He dumps her because he's not ready for that. And so she begins to threaten and blackmail or attempt to blackmail him and Deanne, the Sybil Danning character. Basically, she wants him to come back to him. And so she's blackmailing, say, if you don't um, come back with, with me, be my boyfriend again, I'm going to... Um, show that you're having an affair with um, a, uh, one of the major professors' wife, and who also happens to be a professor. Um, so there's so uh, interesting side plots. Uh, the film is is a bit convoluted, uh, but generally it's uh, easy to follow. Um, there's a lot of red herrings. You don't know who's guilty. You don't know who is um, the bad person and it comes about where everything does tie up at the end um, so some things uh, that's all I'm going to say about the film the plot so you, otherwise I don't want to give anything away uh, but let's talk about various other things that the aspects of this film um, yeah this film uh, Sybil Danning um, this is a sexploitation film for the fact that Sybil Danning is nude numerous times in this film. Uh, she is probably considered one of the biggest uh, cult actresses of all time. Um, she is 
um, extremely gorgeous, uh, and based off her interview, which probably was done in about the last six months, it's an on-camera interview that's included on the disc, she still looks uh, magnificent at the age of 62 to 65, somewhere in there. Um, now, uh, what, what, what she said on the interview, it's an excellent 30-minute uh, interview, uh, maybe a tad under, where she d explains her career, uh, as I stated, and then she said that a lot of roles that she received uh, were actually more because she posed in Playboy in 1983, and she said this film actually was one of the films that uh, she got hired because of her Playboy pictorial. Uh, when she would go into for acting jobs, uh, most producers uh, would or directors would didn't know any of her films necessarily. Most of them obviously were uh, from Europe and foreign language, um, but they did know her immediately uh, because they had all seen the Playboy magazine. And so she would be hired uh, a lot because of that. Um, and that helped her career greatly. Unfortunately, uh, as stated, um, because she's uh, fairly attractive, she became, um, I guess, pigeonholed as the sex pot type roles. But she had an agent that was uh, brilliant because what he said was, why don't you follow the career of uh, Sylvia Crystal, um, that, that actress I mentioned that Eric Brown starred in, uh, in Private Lessons, which, by the way, is actually coming out next month, uh, remastered Blu-ray, I believe, by Kino Lorber as well. Um, and what is it happened with Civil S Crystal did a lot of sexploitation films, but then she became the gun woman, meaning action woman with the gun. And so Sybil Danning uh, followed suit and actually uh, began getting roles uh, more apt to be like her role from Battle Beyond the Stars. So she did a lot of uh, genre films, action films, gun films, science fiction films, horror films, and was able to uh, do numerous cult films even if it was still cult films and not the original things that she wanted. However, she was very happy with her career. She said, has no issues uh, with the choices that she made and uh, had a lengthy career where she made a lot of money and um, is, is, is well loved by uh, folks of, of genre cinema from the 70s and 80s especially. Um, she, she does uh, convention circuits once in a while and so forth. She was uh, friends with uh, folks like Jack Nicholson and other Hollywood f folks, um, even if she did not necessarily uh, be in the movies with, with them. Um, now, uh, she does say some other interesting things about the film is that uh, the lead, Eric Brown, she felt, um, and she came up, she was very fairly polite about it, but she said that um, she he wasn't as professional as everybody else on the film. Uh, basically, um, he poo-pooed the, the, the nude scenes and the sex scenes, uh, and she questioned, didn't he read the script prior? Uh, what was the big deal? Uh, that was the type of film it was, a thriller or, or a sex thriller, you know, basically a psychological type of thriller like that. Um, and he seemed to uh, be a bit of a prima donna and not really talk to anybody else on set 
being a 21-year-old kid at the time of the film, um, maybe he, he, he was that way, and I can believe it. Um, Sybil Danning also stated that uh, during her um, acting there, based off of what was seen on screen, you would never have guessed that uh, Eric Brown happened to be the way he was off screen, and I would agree with that because everybody pretty much um, holds their own acting, uh, even though uh, you could argue Eric Brown was the weakest link in the film, um, yet um, he was helped tremendously by uh, Sybil Danning's uh, professionalism and acting chops. Um, so. Um, uh, that 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 uh, was not noticed at all. Uh, oddly, um, the main person she mentions in the film is the cinematographer, uh, a guy named uh, Gary Graver. Gary Graver uh, was an interesting p person because he actually uh, worked with Orson Welles numerous times on films, uh, and yet also was a director of adult movies as well. He he was a, the type of guy that was in. Um, Hollywood that did everything and everything from X-rated movies to dramas and classic films with um, uh, big-time stars. He also worked with uh, favorites like Roger Corman, Fred Olin Ray, uh, even worked with Ron Howard. And uh, as I stated, uh, he was the go-to man of Orson Welles uh, during uh, Orson Welles' last uh, 20 or so years uh, prior to his death. Um, Sybil Danning actually stated that Gary Graver was, was great, uh, she was good friends with him, and felt that he, being um, also a veteran of working on adult films, he was able to frame the nude and sex scenes excellently and um, made the film even stronger than it uh, could have been had she, uh, he not participated in the film so his he um, I may have worded that wrongly but basically what I'm stating is uh, having uh, Gary Graver's professionalism working with someone like Orson Welles plus his uh, framing of adult films he was able to make the film stronger because of how the film switched between drama and thriller to uh, sexploitation film um, I don't know too much else about the um, other folks behind this, the film, uh, Howard Avidis, as I mentioned, uh, directed the horror film uh, Mortuary, which has been released recently uh, on disc, um, on Blu-ray, I believe last year uh, or two years ago by either Code Red or, or uh, Scorpion releasing, um, and can be purchased on you know anywhere you find films. I've not seen that film. Uh, the film was uh, co-written by the director, Howard Avidis, as well as his wife, Marlene Schmidt. Um, she uh, co-wrote it with her husband, um, and they also were the producers of the film, uh, the couple, Howard Avidis and Marlene Schmidt. Um, now, uh, uh, the presentation of the film is excellent. The audio is excellent. Um, it's, uh, if you're a fan of Sybil Danning, uh, to see her in HD in all her glory, that's always a good thing. But also, um, the film itself is a pretty damn good film. I was highly enthralled. The, the scary parts were very 
shocking. Uh, uh, so, so for a horror fan who's been desensitized, um, the deaths are still pretty shocking, what occurs and how they happen. Um, and um, the film uh, has, a, like I said, an excellent 30-minute um, uh, interview with Sybil Danning, where she goes through her career. Uh, I, I would have enjoyed it if, if it was even longer. Um, because uh, she is uh, one hell of a smart lady, able to um, produce enough money to, to for a film that went to Academy Award nominations uh, to figure out um, how she was pigeonholed, how to get around it, how to uh, become not only a sex symbol but an action star as well as a screen queen and a cult film hero. Um, so that, that was that was the, one of the highlights, uh, and is, is as good as the um, the movie itself. Uh, the movie uh, kept me engrossed, and it was enjoyable. Um, nothing about it bothered me, and uh, I would highly recommend the film. Uh, you can get it now for under twenty dollars, uh, between seventeen to twenty dollars on uh, your online retailers, and it's a great place to start. If you're want, or if you want to become a fan of Sybil Danning and sees part of her cinematography, uh, since it's uh, she's the lead and um, she's solid as heck in the film, and it's a good taste of 1980s thrillers uh, with horror elements. Okay, the movie I'm going to uh, discuss is a, a curiosity in the sense that I don't really have much detail specifically about uh, the folks uh, both in front of and behind the camera. Uh, I did uh, do some research through uh, Twitter and the internet and blogs and so forth and just some actual comments and statements from uh, the director. Uh, through uh, the Twitter account, um, but uh, either way, it's an interesting film, and it's actually shocking and somewhat depressing to find out that it's actually 10 years old, uh, because uh, when I first heard about this film, it was only uh, 2016, maybe uh, February of uh, 2016, where uh, I heard some uh, good things about it and uh, decided to order it on Amazon, yet unfortunately the film's um, rights had reverted back to uh, the director, and um, it had become out of print. Um, but uh, let me, let me uh, discuss what it is. Uh, first of all, the film's called Viva, uh, as in uh, life, in uh, most of the Latin languages, uh, specifically, I believe, Italian, based off of uh, what uh, one of the characters says in this movie. So, Viva, V-I-V-A. Um, it's a film by uh, director Anna Biller. Anna Biller, B-I-L-L-E-R. Uh, she is, uh, it appears, I don't know too much about her. If you look for bios, it uh, doesn't even say her age or uh, where she grew up or anything, but, but it, it does say uh, that she was a UCLA or USC, a California University graduate, uh, and then went for um, uh, extended school, uh, I think master's 
uh, at another California school in the arts. Um, uh, she is a jack of all trades. Uh, she writes, directs, uh, does costume design for her film. Uh, in this case, two films she's done so far. Uh, the other is uh, the fairly well-known film because it's uh, just been released called The Love Witch. Um, she also edits uh, and she does uh, songwriting and she uh, does some other things too but one thing of interest is she is most certainly a student of film history and not just midnight movies uh, even though uh, both her feature-length films are midnight movies in a sense. Um, uh, the, the thing about this film is it is a throwback to exploitation cinema or what some people would even say sexploitation cinema of bygone days. Uh, I want to bring up some things about that because uh, this is a very curious film because there are numerous types of exploitation, sexploitation films of the past. There's obviously uh, the comedies uh, all the way to uh, the roughies, to the melodramas, and so forth. And uh, this film oddly has numerous aspects. Uh, it's almost like a mishmash of various and dozens of types of subgenres within the sexploitation uh, films. Um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about sexploitation films, but um, I figure folks want to at least hear uh, what this film's about. And uh, I got the uh, the disc here uh, and the back jacket and its statement. Uh, let's read it. A suburban housewife in 1972 is abandoned by her husband and goes out to find herself in the middle of the swinging sexual revolution. Looking for love and adventure, she is dragged through the worlds of nudist colonies, hippies, modeling, prostitution, bisexuality, and bohemia, becoming a candid candid of the 1970s and finding liberation along the way. Viva is a sumptuously visually Metzger's Camille 2000, uh, which is a very interesting thing because um, even though I bought the disc and I had the disc and I've read some reviews specifically on its throwback that would have been uh, quite uh, I guess happy or, or at least have a grin on my face for the reference of Radley Metzger's Camille 2000 until now this is the first time I actually read the back jacket because when I did see those Camille 2000 references I was uh, giddy as a schoolboy in a sense because uh, um, the, the scenes that she um, references in Viva, meaning Annabella, what she references in Viva, um, are some of the more iconic scenes of that movie, and uh, uh, yeah, it's, it was uh, a joy to see in the film. Um, now, the thing about the, these types of films, uh, at least the, the originals, not, not this um, here, this, this one here you could argue is, is a throwback similar to um, a faux Grindhouse film, uh, so you know how Hobo with a Shotgun in the Quentin Tarantino Robert Rodriguez Grindhouse film, uh, among other films, are throwbacks to uh, Grindhouse movies of the past. This here, this film here, is similar to that, though rather than 
um, thrillers or horror, it is to uh, exploitation and uh, sex exploitation films. Um, now, uh, a lot, lot of the, the uh, folks uh, that did sex exploitation films, uh, there's, there's all sorts of them. Uh, she, as we said here, we have um, uh, Radley Metzger. Um, obviously, he, um, I guess, um, melodramas, while uh, others like um, uh, uh, Novak and Friedman, David Freeman and um, Bob Cressy, uh, folks like that, who produced a lot of these films, uh, they were more into uh, extreme uh, violence or ridiculous comedy um, rather than drama. Um, I, when I was going into this film, I was expecting a film similar to a Joe Sarno film. Uh, Joe Sarno is a well-known uh, exploitation, sex exploitation uh, director from the 60s and 70s, mostly, who did uh, a lot of very much uh, melodramatic pieces uh, that were, I guess, NC-17 type rating films rather than R. Um, they uh, really uh, held on to the plot more than anything else, even though their main purpose was to, I guess, uh, titulate, titulate, I can't even say the word, um, because of, uh, the, obviously, the nudity and uh, softcore uh, sex. Um, but this film here was not like that, really, um, at all. It was uh, more uh, unexpected elements, because uh, there were, are some changes where a lot of the film is tongue-in-cheek, and then suddenly you have a fairly dramatic or shocking moment that uh, was was not necessarily expected. Um, now uh, let's let's talk a, a little bit about um, Annabella first. Like I stated back in February of 2016, uh, it was released by Cult Epics in two versions: uh, the R-rated version and the unrated version. The unrated version is uh, 30 or so more minutes than the R-rated version. Um, the rumors were uh, two reasons this was the case, that they had two versions. One was that folks who were releasing the film wanted a more streamlined film and felt that an hour and a half would be better than a two-hour film. And the other reason was um, to cut the film uh, nudity and um, ex exploitation back a bit so it could get a R rating. Um, th so that's that's two two of the things of note that I've read anyway. Why it happened? Uh, Anna Villa stated on Twitter recently, and this is when I actually found her on Twitter, uh, just coincidentally because someone retweeted a tweet that she had uh, that I happen to follow. And um, the tweets basically stated that um, how uh, a lot of folks uh, preferred her longer cut, which is the cut that she prefers herself, obviously, because that's, that's her original tent, intent. Um, so what happened was, is um, unfortunately, the cult epics discs are um, the R-rated. You can get... Um, I think for about twenty nine ninety nine or something, it's still available here and there. Uh, but obviously, I, I wanted the director's cut, which is the extended cut, 
and that unrated cut is unfortunately out of print and um i was just uh you know pu uh, put it in order and hoped it would come but it never did and amazon would email me uh monthly stating uh do you want to wait and i would just say yes um but when when uh anna biller mentioned this uh on, on twitter I saw that tweet. I tweeted saying my order's still 10 months, 12 months ago, and it's, I'm still waiting for it. And uh, she said, oh, you can actually buy it from my website. Uh, uh, her website is a alifeofastar.com. And uh, sure enough, uh, it's there, and it's actually cheaper than uh, the Cult Epic version. Uh, it's, I think, $15.99 or something. Though, uh, one note, uh, it doesn't have any extras, but the trailer. Uh, I believe the Cult Epic disc has uh, numerous extras. Um, but at this point, I didn't want to spend uh, a crazy amount for a used or a, a new version from a third party. Um, and I said, most certainly, I ordered it and it, it came in the mail uh, within two days. She mailed it out immediately. Uh, so if you want to get uh, any her stuff from her website, including uh, a disc of short films that she made and uh, a book about uh, some of her work. Uh, it's all there. Um, so, a alifeofastar.com. About the film itself, um, it's, it's uh, of note that Annabella states specifically in many interviews that uh, one of her big uh, loves is uh, design and uh, if you go through her Twitter account at least recently she talks a lot about um, uh, at least right now it's a woman's bedrooms and she takes photos from various old films and when I say old films I'm talking classic films and um, has been posting them up and talking about oh look at this and how this looks and and that and the, the uniqueness of this and whatnot and uh, so you can tell that what she says in interviews is most certainly the case based off of uh, what you see on Twitter. And um, one of the things that she stated in her, her um, interviews that I noted was that she says that a lot of times she likes to think of cool and iconic imagery and then write scenes around the imagery. And uh, that's actually a pretty cool thing because uh, a lot of authors... Um, and uh, as some folks may know, I have um, a bunch of short stories that have been published in numerous anthologies. A lot of times um, I think of a cool idea and then write a story around that cool idea. And she's similar to that where she has a cool idea, um, whether it's um, a scene in a movie that could be a scene in a movie or whether it's some sort of iconic design that she can do, and when I say design, I'm talking about clothing or um, uh, interior decorating type stuff for a room that would be in a movie. She would then um, uh, build her design based off of these ideas and then put a story around it. Uh, for example, one of her, her things she's mentioned, and I have not seen the film yet, uh, though I do have a copy of it, The Love Witch. Uh, I believe there's a scene where there's a girl in a bikini sitting next to a gravestone, and that scene was an idea or something that popped in her mind, and then she created 
the design around that and then wrote that as part of a scene within that movie, The Love Witch. So, uh, um, and that's how a lot of authors uh, work, never mind uh, how she works. So uh, um, I could relate to that and uh, um, it definitely made a lot of sense to me. Um, but she also, uh, as I said, she writes uh, the screenplay and directs. Uh, I did read a, another uh, interview that she did, which was really curious, which is she um, sets her uh, film set like a German war machine. Uh, she, she uses the, the German term, but what it is is she's the leader, and then she has strong um, lieutenants. So by the time the film begins and is in production and being filmed, she does not have to um, give direction because the lieutenants already know what they want based off of what she wants and then everything is fine. She also says that um, when she interviews people for jobs, whether acting or in front of the camera uh, or behind the camera, um, she likes to interview people because the human flaws come out pretty quick and she'll know whether or not they will work. And uh, this is a, this is a really good point because uh, when I was in Boston the other day um, to watch a screening of uh, Dangerous People, uh, the Garo Negro Hesian film that's coming out later this year, um, he mentioned that he had filmed had an actor playing one of the roles in that film, and he had filmed for about a month, and the actor was doing it too straight, and he needed to have a little tongue-in-cheek, and he, the actor wouldn't necessarily agree, so he had to fire him or ask him to leave, and then he had to start all over his production. And even as uh, a disc for extras and the, the Blu-ray for that film is going to come out later this year, he said he couldn't even use um, that footage as behind the scenes or anything like that for the fact that um, that uh, actor didn't, hadn't signed the paperwork to have that stuff released. So he told, told me that that was a complete disaster, and so I could see exactly what Anna Bill is talking about here. And um, uh, so it's, it's, it's uh, an interesting thing. She's, she's pretty smart when it comes to um, uh, what she needs and what she wants. Uh, she did mention in another interview that at the Love Witch, when um, it began filming, uh, the AD, which is, I believe stands for Assistant Director, somewhat disappeared, and other people somewhat disappeared, and she and her cinematographer had to take the reins and do extra work when they were not planning. So uh, I think obviously it's a, it's a continuing learning experience. So if she does make a third film, uh, obviously uh, she'll probably correct that issue that she saw when she did The Love Witch. Um, now, uh, this film here, let's get back straight into uh, Viva now. Um, um, only after, sorry about that, i got to go back, um, Anna Billa's film knowledge. Um, on Twitter, uh, it's amazing her knowledge on so many levels of uh, film, specifically old film. Um, and she's not just a film, uh, amateur film historian on genre pieces. She's also an uh, amateur film historian on classic uh, film as well. Um, from films like Forever Amber, 
all the way to uh, some of her favorite leading men of the past, uh, and she named a bunch of them. Uh, I think Gregory Peck was one, but uh, one that also was of note was uh, Leslie Howard, which was uh, interesting because that one um, I saw her write on Twitter and then read it in an article later, so it wasn't just a coincidence. She had mentioned him in Twitter recently, um, and uh, that um, raised my eyebrows because uh, Leslie Howard was uh, from a long time ago and died very young and only had a handful of leading roles and uh, he was a unique uh, actor as well and uh, for her to reference him and like him I thought that was pretty cool. Um, speaking of him, uh, The Petrified Forest starring him, uh, Betty Davis and Humphrey Bogart. Uh, the film actually made Humphrey Bogart a superstar. It was the first film that made him a superstar. Um, is a great film to check out. It's very melodramatic, uh, but it's a really cool gangster film as well. And um, uh, I can see the influence of films like, for, um, not Forever Amber, because I haven't seen that, though I, I know the book. I have, a, I have the book, but I just haven't seen the film. But uh, Petrified Forest, for example, the melodramatic acting there, as well as uh, a film she didn't mention, but it, I could see her liking would be Peyton's Place, uh, starring uh, Lana Turner. Um, now, uh, let's get back to Viva, finally. Um, so Viva is an exploitation film. It's it's very much um, what you would saw in, uh, oddly, in a film like um, Austin Powers, uh, the mod look, that is the pastel colors, the interesting clothes, the mini skirts, the thigh-high boots, or, or at least the knee-high boots, the um, uh, the beehive hairdos, um, things of that nature, uh, that real late 60s, early 70s look, uh, that it's, it is um, designed that way, this film is designed that way, and has lush colors like films of the past. It actually reminded me more of the Cinescope uh, coloring that you would see in a 1950s um, B film, uh, science fiction color film, and it, it was that bright and and remarkable. Um, it's it's curious because you you wonder at points is the acting just bad or is it uh, the story um, switching because of bad writing? But most certainly not. This this is intentionally that way. If folks have seen numerous exploitation and exploitation films from the 60s and 70s. They have good actors and they have bad actors. They have plots that come out of nowhere. They focus on one character where you would think they're the lead and then you find out they may not be. Um, so the ones in the past, not all of them, but some of them were a bit amateurish. Um, and when I say amateurish, I mean um, inexperienced. Uh, people who did them were inexperienced, um, and and Anna Villa is definitely trying to get that vibe. So, for example, uh, a couple of the characters, um, there's a, a woman named Sheila and her husband, and there's a scene uh, at the pool where they're laughing a lot, and it's over-the-top laughing, um, so it makes it look like they're bad acting, but of course that's not necessarily the case. Uh, for example, um, Steve McQueen, in the film 
the Thomas Crown affair, uh, does this type of laugh as well. So whether or not she actually was referencing that type of laugh or just uh, from various films that she's seen in the past, I don't know, but it most certainly reminded me of Steve McQueen in um, the Thomas Crown affair. Um, so the, there's the tongue-in-cheek in the sense that things are over the top. So, for example, uh, the woman is reading Playboy and drinking uh, scotch um, at the pool at 8 or 9 in the morning with the husband. So, you know, little things like that, that's a little bit over the top, and that's intentional because of the way these films were made in the past. Um, and then we are introduced uh, to... Uh, a, a girl named, or a woman named Barbie, who is actually Anna Biller herself. She actually acts as well, so she's the lead actress in the film, which somewhat surprised me because even though she's on the cover of the disc, um, Sheila, I thought, was going to be the lead based off of um, her introduction to the film. And uh, the first 40, 50 minutes are basically, um, uh, I guess, nods to sexploitation films of the past uh, and eventually uh, we have melodramatic moments where um, both Sheila and Barbie's uh, marriages fall apart and the two of them uh, turn into or become wild women in a sense and when I say wild women I mean um, free with no attachment and are uh, liberated um, it remind, actually oddly reminded me of a film called uh, A Vere Vent Ani uh, by an uh, Italian director uh, named um, Fernando De Leo. Um, it's also known as When I Was 17 or something of that nature. Um, and that film, uh, which is released by Rero uh, Video, another boutique company, um, actually... Um, has the same feel. The two young, two women uh, live the life bohemian style and whatnot, um, and so forth. And this film reminded me of that, except for the ending, uh, because a very ventani or when I was 17 um, has a, a horror ending. Um, now this film here, uh, Viva, does have some moments of of shock um, and I guess horror. Uh, there's um, uh, druggings um, without consent there's um, sexual assault at least once um, and uh, and those things are felt at first a little odd but if you've seen these films this is how they are for example an excellent example of that would be Beneath the Valley of the Dolls which is kind of a parody tongue-in-cheek uh, sexploitation film uh, directed by uh, Russ Meyer and written by Roger Ebert um, feels a lot like this and yet it has some uh, uh, shocking moments especially the ending and uh, this film I think was playing up on that um, uh, one, one scene I did want to bring up was that uh, Camille 2000 reference um, I gotta give Anna Bill a credit because she's able to uh, I have absolutely no idea how she was able to, but she was able to get uh, the rights and who knows how much she had to pay uh, for the music from Camille 2000 and and then re 
made that the the big uh, orgy scene in that film in this film and um that was pretty impressive especially when i heard uh, chains of love uh that's a great song uh from Camille 2000 and it was uh played in this film as well and to get the rights to be able to do that must have been something because uh, again speaking of garo negohesian from dangerous people fame which will be coming out later this year uh he said that uh it was a pain in the ass to to get the rights to classic rock music from that era because his is a faux grindhouse film as well uh and he was able to find some lesser known artists who were able to get their uh music rights back and he was able to um use them but again he didn't have to spend uh big money but again you never know i mean camille 2000 uh was a good movie with a, a good soundtrack maybe uh since it's at this point an obscure film maybe it was easy to or cheaper to get the the rights to for the music um there's a few dance numbers in the in the uh film uh, and singing numbers uh there's a breaking the fourth wall at least once uh which was by the Sheila's husband's character um there's numerous uh actors um uh, that were were uh interesting uh one uh, uh was a guy named uh artist named Clyde and he felt to me very much like a Davy Jones from the Monkees uh and I thought he was really good um and uh folks who are curious uh yes there's a ton a ton of uh nudity both male and female uh, including the director herself, uh, which she is the lead actress in this film. And, uh, yeah, she uh, is um, an equal opportunity uh, with her fellow co-stars uh, to be nude in the film. Um, uh, there was an interesting one actress, uh, a red-headed or auburn-haired woman, uh, had a fairly large uh, supporting role, and she was completely nude the, her entire time on screen from the beginning to end. Um, so that was curious as well. Um, what else about the film? Again, I'm trying to talk about the film without giving any of the plot uh, to spoil it. I don't want to spoil it at all. Um, uh, well, I guess I can round up and talk about whether I like the film or not. And uh, yes, this film was great. Uh, it was a good time. Uh, I, uh, as I state, you know, if a film is good within the first few minutes, and immediately I was enjoying it, and then uh, you also know when you're not fiddling with your iPhone or iPad, you know, if you're paying full attention to the film, it has to be good, and sure enough, uh, I did, and when I did want to check uh, baseball box scores, I paused the film. Uh, so yeah, it was a really good film, uh, especially when the Camille 2000 reference came up I thought that was awesome because um, it's such an obscure film and only film uh, amateur film historians or people who like uh, uh, Midnight or Rear or obscure films would have gotten the reference and uh, uh, I thought that was amazing and that really gave a big smile to my face um, and uh, I, d I did uh, tweet her a couple of times, and uh, um, 
she she uh, forwarded some of those tweets because uh, one one of the tweets I, I wrote was uh, a great line in the film was basically there's a scene when um, Barbie is talking to her husband and her husband wants to go away for a month and she gets concerned that that um, maybe he's going to have an affair so she goes um, are there going to be a lot of girls there and he goes girls girls are everywhere and uh, obviously I'm not doing justice but it was just a humorous and uh, iconic moment I thought to the film uh, there's a couple other interesting lines too there's uh, when Sheila is uh, with this billionaire out to dinner and the billionaire is you know like a 90 year old man and she's like a 20 something year old uh, she has a fur coat on and the maitre d or coat girl, check girl takes her jacket and says uh, this jacket does a this fur coat does a lot for you and she says oh thank you and then uh, the coat check girl also says you probably had to do a lot for the fur coat um, you know hint hint wink wink um, so there's a couple of interesting and funny lines um, and the, st the movie moves quickly uh, the people who decided to cut the film to an hour and a half because of pacing that's absolutely ludicrous because uh, this t a two-hour film was fine in pacing I felt um, however um, um, some folks may may shy away because they expect an hour and 30 minutes is fine for an exploitation film but since this plays homages to so many exploitation films uh, it's a mishmash as I stated from comedic to melodramatic to um, even horrific at some points it um, doesn't feel um, like it is over long uh, so yeah uh, it's a good film uh, excellent debut film uh, interesting that it took 10 years for her next film uh, which was The Love Witch um, I do know that since she does all her design work uh, meaning costumes and interior decorating for scenes uh, it could probably take a long time to uh, get a production off ground uh, so um, it's, it's maybe a little bit surprising if not completely surprising um, I do know the love witch is getting good reviews this film here Viva did get a lot of good reviews as well uh, I plan to see the love witch soon enough maybe it will be an episode of a future dark discussions or even uh, a psychotronic reviews uh, but all in all uh, Viva is definitely worth checking out especially if you are into midnight films uh, and cult films from the past whether you like uh, melodramas of Joe Sano or Radley Metzger or if you like uh, comedy exploitation films or even um, the roughies uh, this this film fits nicely along with anything you would find uh, from vinegar syndrome or something weird video uh, two of the bigger named boutique labels of sexploitation films uh, so once again to where you can find the film uh, if you don't want to spend uh, the money for the out-of-print cult epics with all the extras, you can still get the full unrated version of uh, Viva from a life of a star dot com, which is uh, Annabella's home website. Life 
of sdrock.com. So that's uh, Viva, and uh, worth checking out. Uh, the film that I'm going to discuss is uh, from a label called Massacre Video. And uh, Massacre Video has been releasing uh, films in the past six months or so, maybe longer, but I, I'm, I've only started to take notice of them within the past six months or so um, because a lot of the websites that I go to to see uh, reviews of uh, upcoming or recent released boutique label uh, movies uh, suddenly started reviewing them, meaning they probably were getting screener copies, uh, or I guess not screener copies, but but copies of the, the disc um, to review. And um, Massacre Video uh, has been pumping out a few uh, recently, and uh, I've noticed, uh, and specifically based off of what some of these uh, blogs online have stated, Massacre Video uh, has been getting the rights to a lot of SOV films, uh, SOV films meaning shot on video films rather than um, film stock or even digital video, but specifically um, um, at the, at, if since they're older films, like 20, 30 years, a lot of these films, uh, I guess VHS recordings, uh, that type of video. Um, and I'm uh, not sure if that is specifically what their intent is to get those type of films and release them, or uh, these films have been ignored by other boutique labels and therefore have not uh, been picked up or re-released, or maybe the rights to those films, these SOV films, um, are maybe a little cheaper. And I assume also uh, a lot of the SOV films are a little easier to remaster because since their video stock quality when they were filmed, uh, there's not really m too much you can do to make them look any better than uh, probably their original um, uh, recording back when they were recorded, say, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, so it's not like an old film reel uh, from Canon Films or whatnot that has just been ignored and, and then Screen Factory comes in and takes it and remasters it and now it looks brand new. Um, a lot of these SOV type of films, uh, unfortunately, were never going to look uh, in high definition just for the fact they were video. Um, now, uh, this film here that I'm going to talk about is called Phantom Killer, and that's F-A-N-T-O-M uh, and um, Killer. But uh, originally it was titled Killer with one L. Uh, but here, the massacre release, uh, whether that's intentional or they actually just screwed it up, uh, <laughs> honestly, I'm not sure, um, they spell it with two L's, Killer with two L's. Uh, but Phantom is F-A-N-T-O-M. Um, this film is from, I believe, 1998, so it's a 19-year-old film. It's uh, a curious history uh, because um, it is um, it's definitely an NC-17 film, specifically not for the violence, even though there is um, uh, gore in the film, but uh, this film, too, similar to other films that I'm talking about tonight, uh, or in this episode, such as Tromeo and Juliet and Viva, uh, have um, 
excessive nudity and in some cases extreme nudity uh, and this film most certainly has that um, it's a film that is technically a film from Poland um, so a Polish production but there is been rumors throughout the years that this film is actually a film produced and made by English folk uh, where they just happen to hire uh, a Polish director and Polish actresses and actors to play the roles uh, and it was rumored that the reason for that was to get around British censorship especially back in that era 1998 um, because if they're going to make a film that would be I guess uh, as I stated uh, NC-17 or I th I'm not even sure what that means but I think maybe not for children or something uh, and anyone that's under the age of 17 or under can't see the film um, even with a guardian um, so uh, at least that's a, what, what it means uh, this ratings is in the US of A uh, for you folks who aren't American listeners uh, that's what that would mean um, but either way um, Phantom Killer had what uh, American uh, MPAA Association would say NC-17 uh, things in it and so since the, what I've been told or read I should say uh, the UK um, it's it's even more strict over there so what they did um, was produce it through Poland so they could release it th uh, as a non-English uh, non film or a non-UK film and that somehow would, would sneak it through the censors or something that's, that's, that's at least a rumor uh, that but again that's just a complete rumor technically the film is a Polish film uh, and technically it's supposed to be uh, produced by Polish folk um, but th there's a, a rumor going around otherwise and uh, based off of uh, some of the extras on the disc it would not surprise me if it was partly both uh, because some of the folks uh, behind the scenes um, in some of the raw footage of the movie um, have English accents and English accents specifically from England and not um, uh, continental European Polish people that just learned English with English accents um, now uh, let me read the back jacket of uh, this film uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about it and, and the people behind and in front of the camera and whatnot um, it's, it says Phantom Killer he likes his woman naked and dead a beautiful woman living in a small Polish town are being found butchered in unspeakably grotesque ways. As the police desperately search for clues which could lead to the identity of this misogynistic masked assailant, suspicion begins to mount against the strange younger brother of one of the officers who had been previously confined to an asylum Will this fiendish killer be unmasked before his bloodthirsty appetite needs to be satisfied once again? Massacre Video presents Polish director, cult director Roman Nowicki's, Nowicki's gore and nudity-filled sleazefest, Phantom Killer, previously released as Phantom Killer 1L, okay, so it wasn't a mistake, they, they, cha they changed the name here, uh, in the United Kingdom it was uh, spelled with 1L, completely uncut here and in a newly created widescreen master 
Um, so that's that's the back cover of the jacket. So yeah, they they did rename it for this disc intentionally. Um, now uh, a couple of things about the film, um, or I should say, um, the disc and film. Um, there's an audio audio commentary by uh, the director, uh, newly recorded, so uh, brand new because this is a, a, re a release uh, that just came out uh, in April of 2017. Uh, so it's brand new, and so this commentary obviously was just re recorded by um, Roman Novicki within the, probably the past, I don't know, year anyway. Um, and I, I first have to say that it is very informative. Um, he uh, talks a lot about not just what we see on the screen, but how he uh, got it off the ground, um, where... He got the folks to star in the film. Um, uh, the reason he named it Phantom Killer, uh, uh, because it, it was actually called, I think, uh, he, he, he says in the commentary, I believe, that it was called The Town of Hate originally, or something like that, but he felt that that sounded too much like a Western, possibly, or, or would be misinterpreted as a Western or some other genre rather than horror, so he decided to call it Phantom Killer. And he also no noted that uh, since it w he knew the film would get an international audience, um, calling it Phantom Killer uh, was was a, a good way to get it noted by non-Polish-speaking audiences. And also, um, he's noticed that uh, Polish uh, language obviously um, can be uh, hard to. Um, the words are hard to spell. I mean, if folks know, especially in the states where there's a large Polish community, folks can know that um, Polish last names, never mind the language itself, uh, have a lot of uh, consonants without vowels in between. And so uh, he noted this specifically in his commentary. And so by calling it Phantom Killer, which I believe are the way Polish language would spell those words, um, fit perfectly because they were words that could be in Polish but would be understood by non-Polish language countries such as the UK where this was originally got its main distribution. Um, now uh, the, the film um, mostly takes place in a train station and the surrounding woods. Um, it is a low-budget film uh, no doubt about it, and it is um, more an exploitation film than anything else. It is a horror film, it is a slasher, but it is most certainly, mostly an exploitation film, and that's specifically for the fact of um, uh, the, the female nudity and uh, scenes like that that are in this film. Um, and, and the director mostly admits that uh, his intention was to um, uh, do do both uh, an exploitation film with a horror uh, subgenre with uh, hand in hand, um, and and he made a, a fairly good point is that anything with with uh, nudity obviously attracts attention, um, and that, that's that's a fair thing to say because Garo Nigoshian who uh, directed the film Dangerous People, which is coming out later this year, starring Angelina Lee. Um, he specifically stated that one selling point 
for his grindhouse faux grindhouse film that's coming out um, in a few months from now, later in 2017, that obviously female nudity is a huge uh, factor in getting notice uh, for films, especially uh, for cult and midnight movies. And uh, and Roman Novicki here said the same thing. Um, now uh, the the film is is fairly ex- uh, extreme in that sense uh and what i mean is it has uh two things of note one is uh the famous line in leonardo dicaprio martin scorsese film uh entitled the uh, wolf of wall street uh there's a line in that film where the leonardo dicaprio character who's a womanizer and, and a hedonist and whatnot is talking to his father played by rob reiner uh, and he says to him, he goes, uh, women today have no hair below their eyebrows. And, and it's a big joke in that film. So, and that's a modern Scorsese film. Ow! It's that slip disc thing again. I know what it is, you know, too much, uh, with EJ Entertainment. <laughs> Pops. How are things at home? Well, not the best. She just doesn't, you know what I'm saying? It's like the smell. There's a smell. There's a attraction thing, and after a while, it just kind of fades away a little bit. Yeah, well, it's supposed to fade away. Supposed to? That's marriage. You That's know, a... your mother and I, we've been married a long, long time. I what know. do you think? We're, we're, we're jumping into bed every two minutes? It doesn't I work wanna, that I way. I love her to death. I want to stay married, Dad, but uh, it's crazy how deaf some of these girls, you should see them. Oh, my God. They're fucking... The things they're doing now, Pops... I mean, I mean, it's on a whole other level. Really? And they're all shaved, too. Get out of here. They're all shaven. Are you kidding me? Yeah. No bald, bush? Bald as a China No dog. bush? No bush. Oh I know. Oh, my God. I, all of a sudden, I one week, it's nobody new, had anything down there anymore. It's a new world. They're bald, they're bald from the eyebrows down. Wow. Nothing. Not a stitch. It's like lasers. Wow. They new world, see? I, I was born too, uh, too early. I've never been a fan of the bush, to be honest. Really? Yeah. I don't mind it. And in this case, because this film is from 1998, rather than, say, the 1970s or early 80s, like a lot of uh, uh, horror films and genre films, uh, and specifically European horror films where these things happen, um, here, since it's 1998, even though some of the women are um, uh, do have... uh, uh, aren't as, as shaven as others. Here, there, there's a lot that are, and so the nudity is a little bit more graphic because you can see a lot. Um, and uh, some of the nudity you could actually even state is similar to a Tinto Tinto Brass film, uh, the Italian director of note of exploitation films, and also, um, uh, I guess, Cheesecake Nudie magazines as well. So uh, it's a little bit more extreme um, for two reasons. One, because of the camera work, but also for the fact uh, the women uh, are clean-shaven and so forth. So so this, this film, if you're offended by the, uh, female nudity or nudity in general, um, this film would not be for you. Um, now, uh, uh, the film uh, is pretty much a bunch of set pieces. Um, there's, there's really three big set pieces um, and, and what it is, is you got these two janitors, uh, or, or I guess you would call them janitors, that work at this, this, um, 
train station and they are grumpy and angry uh, because they feel that they um, I guess are lower class folk who can't get these beautiful women that or have money and all that stuff and um, the director Roman Nowicki in the director's commentary specifically stated that that's why um, the film was possibly originally going to be called Town of Hate or something of that nature uh, because it was he had this whole backstory of he has this town of a lot of uh, professional well-groomed um, women who um, have a lot of dignity and uh, care about their uh, bank accounts their looks their clothing in other words they have they do not have low self-esteem these women and um, the town happens that the men have fallen behind and have become angry and so the film backstory at least what he was thinking of when he was creating the script in his mind that's how he was looking at the film and uh, the two uh, characters that he decided to focus on were these two janitors uh, one being uh, the brother younger brother of one of the police officers in the town and the other just happened to be um, a just, you know, random janitor that happened to work with this guy um, and what happens is, is that um, this killer uh, masked guy that has um, uh, um, a trench coat um, and it's funny too is that the director also said that he wanted a trench coat that looked nefarious and so uh, when he did his uh, costume run he actually got uh, a, um, a guy from some specialty store in Poland to make him a jacket uh, that looked like uh, someone uh, from the Gestapo or, or the German secret police from uh, World War II um, uh, noted for their brutality and uh, so the, that's where how he got the idea of the trench coat with a, um, a guy that has a white um, stocking mask type thing and then he wears uh, a cap not a cap but a hat similar to a detective uh, and that that's his look and uh, what happens is he basically murders um, these beautiful women and uh, when I say beautiful uh, I mean the, the women in this film are absolutely incredible um, and and you get to see everything um what it is 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 uh the director roman nowicki had uh gone to um adult entertainment club uh, sort of strip joint and um he hired a woman through there to uh, work on this film and uh, a lot of these women were former ballerinas and now we're working in the um, as strippers or adult entertainers and so you know that they, they look pretty good um and it's curious too is is what he state was similar and exactly the same as paul schrader um paul schrader the the writer of uh films such as raging bull and taxi driver among other films and arguably my favorite screenwriter of all time and, and one of the great geniuses in uh hollywood history uh even if i don't like anything about his politics uh, but Paul Schrader is also a fantastic uh, director himself um, and he actually said an uh, interesting thing once in a um, director's commentary for a film that he directed 
that was well received and did get numerous Academy Award nominations. Um, and uh, that that was a film entitled Autofocus, which was a, a film um, about uh, the life of um, Bob Crane, uh, actor from Hogan's Heroes, who died, uh, was murdered. Um, and ba basically what it was is, uh, in this movie, it, it shows that uh, he used to be um, interested in homemade uh, adult films. And um, Schrader took, basically made a bio biopic of him, uh, starring um, pretty damn good actors, as a matter of fact, um, Greg Kinnear and William Defoe, for that matter. And um, in the commentary, since it's that film obviously would have a lot of nudity because of the, um, the topic, um, he stated that, in, in Hollywood anyway, there were, there were lists of actresses, especially um, up-and-comers, who would and would not do nudity, and, and so he would just go down one list or the other, and actually probably just went down the, the list that would uh, do nudity, because they, whether if they would do nudity, they would not do nudity, so just hire everybody from that list. And uh, that's what he did. And basically that's what Roman Nowicki was stating here in this film and how he cast his film was he was able to find a woman who would um, be able to um, uh, do nudity without any issues. Um, and I, I must say that um, the look of the film is, is fairly interesting. Um, first off, uh, a lot of the, the people in the film look as if they came out of the 80s. So a lot of the 80s look that you would see in 80s horror films is similar to here. And it wouldn't surprise me if that was intentional and not because that's how the people looked. Um, it, it, so so it, it's almost like a faux uh, 1980s film made in 1998, which itself makes it uh, an old film anyway because it's, you know, that's 19 years ago. Um, the woman, uh, you know, they because they have tan lines, uh, some of them have like puffy hair, from that would look like they were from 1980s, uh, you know, or MTV video music videos, you know, things of that nature, and um, so it kind of feels like a throwback film, uh, which it is, but even further than 1998. Um, also, um, the set pieces for this film, um, for a low budget film, I, I got to say that the set pieces were pretty damn good. Uh, they had uh woods faux woods so pretend woods um but they looked real uh they have a cemetery they have the cemetery gate they have um a barbed wire fence they have um mist and all that and, and so it looks very gothic even though it's supposed to be a slasher and um i felt the sets were really good the sc music score is awesome uh it's like this techno uh electronic type score and uh, the director actually stated that they had a limited run of uh, a music CD soundtrack for the film, and, and that sold out in, in like a week. Uh, and I can I believe so because it is an awesome soundtrack. Um, the credit sequence is really good. Uh, definitely felt like a 1970s throwback, which is another reason why I felt that he was making a, f a throwback film back in 1998 uh, when this film came out. Um, so all that is great. Um, the murder set pieces are pretty damn good. Um, however, the one thing of interest that a lot of folks have mentioned that review this film 
is um, the ease that um, the char the woman character specifically would, would get out of their clothes, which is a bit silly. Um, because, for example, when they're in the woods, uh, one woman wants to cross over the barbed wire fence, but since she's in this tight skirt, she can't lift her leg, and, and so she takes off her her uh, skirt, and, and all these women are commando, you know, so no no underwear. So um, certain things of that nature make it a little bit silly. Uh, another scene where a woman's being driven on a cab, the cab breaks down, uh, they need a uh, another um, fan belt, so she gives him, the driver, a um, her set of pantyhose, I guess, and uh, the only way to do that is to take off her skirt, and she has no underwear. And then her skirt uh, falls underneath the car and uh, gets blown under the car, and she doesn't want to get her top, which is white, um, obviously dirty, so she takes off her top, and she has no bra. So uh, it's a bit silly in that sense. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, that's the main point of the one of the main points of the film is to make the exploitation element of the film to get the woman out of their um, clothes. But um, in this case, you could say that it's a little bit unrealistic how how it, it happens. Um, but otherwise, um, overlooking some of the the sillinesses like that, uh, the film. Um, uh, it still doesn't get knocked down because of it. Because, again, we are talking about a midnight movie that uh, isn't a tongue-in-cheek film, but uh, being a midnight movie, a lot of midnight movies uh, do have things that feel impossible anyway at, in some cases. And um, here, uh, uh, as well, you would, you would see that. Um, there is one scene that is, is very, very bizarre, and I felt didn't fit into the film, uh, and that was um, the King Arthur scene. I won't discuss much about it. Uh, you should probably just see it and, and to believe it, um, but it, it didn't make... Um, it, it was... I could see wh where he was going, uh, the director, but it was a bit ridiculous, because again, it's another way to get uh, a character out of her clothes um, and a bit too easy. Uh, I felt. Um, now, uh, um, the film is, like I said, low budget, but the presentation is really good. Um, there's, uh, like I said, an excellent uh, audio commentary by the director. Um, there is a bonus short on the, on the uh, disc called The Baby Doll Strangler, which actually um, is somewhat of a flashback uh, in the movie itself, um, so you get to see the whole uh, mini film as well if you want to, uh, and, and a making of documentary on the mini film. Uh, there's a making of uh, fantasy Phantom Killer itself, and um, that actually is pretty good. Um, they're, they're like 20 minutes each. There's three of them, and basically what it is, it's uh, multiple takes of um of the film of of scenes within the film and unlike a lot of these behind the scenes uh you know little bits this one is not boring at all they're actually pretty damn good uh you get to meet the the character actually actresses and actors um uh without um 
them being interviewed, uh, but just simply on the set. And being this type of movie, an exploitation horror film, uh, you get to even see more um, nudity as as uh, you see in the film. Um, also of note is uh, uh, Stills Gallery and uh, the trailer um, uh, for this and a number of other films. Uh, there have actually been, this director actually made three others, Phantom Killer 2, 3, and 4, uh, which uh, are not released yet by Massacre Video or uh, anybody else, uh, but they are released um, by another company. Uh, I've not seen these films, um, but uh, Tara's Films, T-E-R-A-Z Films, uh, which actually also releases the, the first one still. They still release the first one, but um, they also release the three others plus numerous other uh, fairly, uh, I guess, quote-unquote, sleazy exploitation horror films. Uh, and if anybody that has interest in that, they can go look at uh, terazfilms.com and see all the, the various movies there um, by this production company. Uh, it appears they, I don't know if they actually make these films or if they are similar to Troma or something where they buy films and then release them under their name. Uh, but either way, they, they, they or Roman Nowicki uh, gave the rights to Masker Video to release Phantom Killer 1, basically. Um, and uh, uh, knowing what it is, uh, with its extreme nudity and uh, violence, and, and it is there's violence against uh, uh, women. Obviously, a lot of these midnight movies and horror films, slasher films, you know, duh, it's a slasher film. You know, a killer stalks woman, beautiful woman. You know, so big deal, right? So, uh, but all in all, the, again, there's a lot of nudity, and if uh, horror films like slasher films are offensive to you, obviously, you don't want to see this this film. Um, but also put your expectations to note that this is a, a low-budget film, and it does have some silly midnight movie elements to it, but all in all, uh, I thought it was a solid, fun midnight movie with a lot of uh, cool kills, cool set pieces, awesome soundtrack, and a lot of very attractive woman in it, uh, and perfect midnight movie uh, if you like driving and grindhouse films, uh, horror films and whatnot, uh, high recommend. The film that I'm going to review right now is a film from Vinegar Syndrome. That's right, Vinegar Syndrome is a label, boutique label from uh, the state of Connecticut in the U.S. of A. I've mentioned him prior in another episode of Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews. And uh, this time uh, I will just give a quick overview of who they are. Uh, basically, uh, they are a company that has been around for a few years now, and they usually release anywhere between four to six movies per month uh they 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 are one of the more prolific companies out there um they also i think believe they have a lot of cash because they do a lot of remastering for not just vinegar syndrome but for other boutique labels so for example if other boutique labels have a movie that they need to remaster sometimes they outsource to 
this company here, Vinegar Syndrome. So Vinegar Syndrome actually has a lot of stuff going for them prior to um, releasing films, but sp uh, specifically a side business of remastering other boutique labels' films. Um, now, uh, you can find them a lot through... Um, their uh, convention run, they go around to a lot of conventions, especially in uh, the northeast, west, I mean, uh, east coast, uh, things of that nature. Um, they are um, arguably one of the better boutique labels, in my opinion. They um, have a lot of good quality stuff, and they remaster everything really well, and they also um, have a lot of pretty good extras on their discs, uh, specifically extras that they create themselves. Uh, so they're not grabbing random things here or there. They actually uh, put together uh, documentaries and interviews um, by Vinegar Syndrome uh, specifically. And, uh, and this disc here that I'm going to review, they actually have a good uh, about 60 minute, well, or I should say 50 minute uh, documentary on the film. And they do uh, talked to uh, many people that were part of the film, uh, including the screenwriter, the director, and numerous actors. Uh, this film that I'm going to talk about uh, came out in April 2017, so it's a brand new release. Um, and I just took a shot at the film, uh, purchased it through uh, a online retailer. However, they do sell it directly through VinegarSyndrome.com, VinegarSyndrome.com, which uh, actually has um, all their stuff there, uh, including other memorabilia related to the company and um, lists of what's coming in the next couple of months. And they also have some pretty cool sales every so often. Uh, one of the best things you can do um, is you can order their movies through VinegarSyndrome.com and then have it sent to you with a uh, old movie canister and uh, basically the the 42nd Street movie canisters from bygone days uh, those are what you um, get in other words they put the movies in the, the canister and they ship it in the canister to you it costs a little more uh, but during their Christmas sales and things of that nature, you can actually get the movies uh, uh, half price or 60% off and still spend a, a little extra on the canister. Um, and it's a, a good deal. I actually did it two years ago and uh, have my canister right here next to me right now, as a matter of fact. Uh, uh, so it's a pretty cool uh, idea that they got going. Um, now, the movie uh, is specifically called... Um, Psycho Cop Returns. Psycho Cop Returns, also known as Psycho Cop 2. Uh, it's kind of interesting because this film here is released specifically through Vinegar Syndrome, but they have not released uh, the other film, Psycho Cop 1, or just Psycho Cop. Um, but uh, no matter... Uh, the screenwriter actually is interviewed, as I stated in the documentary, and he states that even though he saw the original, he noted that uh, there was not necessary any continuity necessary to make a script for Psycho Cop Returns. Uh, so think of the numerous Halloweens and Friday the 13th and um, Nightmare on Elm Streets. Um, a lot of them don't necessarily, or even Godzilla for that matter, don't necessarily 
uh, look back to the prior films. Uh, this one here um, is oddly standalone, so whether it needed to look back, I don't even think it did, uh, but they do have the same lead character, uh, Officer Vickers, uh, which is the psycho cop. Um, the film is, in some ways, what they say, a ripoff of a prior film uh, called Maniac Cop uh, by William Lustig and Larry Cohen. William Lustig is uh, the guy that directed ma uh, the original Maniac film and is also the owner of Blue Underground, uh, another boutique label. Um, and Maniac Cop, which I have not seen, uh, the original Psycho Cop is similar to that in a sense, is what I'm told. And I guess there's been um, lawsuits going back and forth about um, stealing ideas and whatnot. I don't know um, any further information about that, except that they, uh, you know, whatever. But it, it's kind of silly when you think about it, because you've, you would hope they would um, help each other out. Uh, but at the time, being new films um, and being, um, uh, I guess, less films you know, harder to make films back in those days. It was more important to um, uh, try to keep your your uh, original idea under wraps and not uh, being used or having it be copycatted by others. Though, as you know, there's been dozens of alien ripoffs and things like that, so um, it's, it's a bit interesting. Uh, but either way, um, the original Psycho Cop, which came out in 1989, I have not seen. Um, so I don't know anything about the film otherwise, uh, but this film here came out in 1993, so, uh, that's a, what, 24-year-old film now. Um, it was directed by a guy named Adam, Adam Rifkin, which some people may know. He's somewhat, uh, known, uh, uh, for doing numerous films. I, I'm not too familiar with a lot of his work, but, uh, he did The Chase with, um, Charlie Sheen, uh, he did a film called Detroit Rock City, uh, which I know has a fairly good cult following, uh, he did a film, a couple other films he did was The Dark Backward, Night at the Golden Eagle, uh, I'm not familiar with those, um, but, uh, either way, he was, um, the director here, um, he actually, uh, has a screenwriter, that wrote the film uh, named uh, Dan Povenmire, and Dan Povenmire actually uh, is a uh, writer or um, cartoonist for The Simpsons, uh, or at least at the time he was, and uh, so uh, we, we have um, him here doing a screenplay for, I guess, a horror film, or more uh, horror film tongue-in-cheek kind of, sort of. Uh, I'll explain a little bit as we go. Uh, the film uh, stars a lot of folks that I'm not quite familiar with, but I will uh, talk about them as um, we go through. But let me give a couple of names uh, in not specific order of who who is the lead. Though um, the I think the top billed person was Julie Strain, who was a 1993 Pet House pet of the year, I think, and, and it actually states that in the credits. Uh, Julie Strain uh, was a well-known actress and pin-up model for years. Uh, she had actually married Kevin Eastman 
and uh, had appearances in uh, the, the magazine Heavy Metal, uh, of obviously of drawings and, and, and so forth of her. Um, Kevin Eastman was the co-founder or co-creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, I guess she's mostly well known uh, for her list of B horror films and cult films that she did, including with Jim Wynorski, uh, but she's also known for being six feet tall. Uh, so uh, what some folks call her an Amazon goddess, uh, as w what I read on the internet. Uh, other people of note in this film is John Paxton, has a small role in this. He's actually the father of Bill Paxton. Uh, other folks of note, um, let me see here, uh, Barbara Niven, who is actually married to the son of David Niven, and who was also David Niven Jr., was uh, one of the producers, I believe, of this film here. Uh, Rod Schweitzer, um, he's probably the actual lead of the film, um, at least for, for the good guys, or, or the non-baddie. Non uh, Miles Dougal is in this film. I'm not, I'm not sure who he is. I have this first film I've ever seen him in. Uh, Nick Vallelonga, uh, who has had numerous cameos in uh, a lot of films, including Goodfellas. Uh, a guy named Dave Bean. Uh, Melanie Good stars in this, and uh, she has a pretty big role here. Uh, Priscilla Huckleberry uh, is another actress that has a pretty decent-sized role here. And um, another person of note is Carol Cummings, and uh, I'll talk about her as we get into the film. Um, and, of course, Robert R. Schaefer plays Officer Joe Vickers, uh, the baddie of this film. Um, the film... Originally, uh, Robert R. Schaefer, he played the psycho cop in the first film as well, and based off of the documentary, uh, he signed a five-picture deal um, after the first film because the rumor was is uh, Officer Joe Vickers was going to be the next horror icon. And when I say horror icon, I mean um, like Freddy Krueger or Michael Myers or someone like that. Uh, but... After the second film, for whatever reasons, the franchise dissolved and ended, and that was the end of that. However, um, it did get him known as an actor, uh, Robert Schaefer, and eventually he became a star of the television show The Office, uh, playing a character named Bob Vance, which I am ashamed to say I have never seen. Um, but I believe he had a pretty big role in that film, and that was a uh, a big, big film, um, uh, or, or TV show, I should say, uh, for a number of years. Uh, but he did have a, a pretty cool cameo in uh, the film um, Zombievers, uh, one of the horror films from a couple of years ago that Dark Discussions put as a... Uh, top 10 horror film for the year but um he actually only played a small role in that so blank you miss him um and i gotta say that uh, he was great in this film uh, absolutely fantastic I, I actually honestly and even adam rifkin says um the actors in this film were all fantastic uh, the casting was great they all played it sh as straight as possible even though it was a comedy and um, some of the 
the leads um, and, and supporting roles were, were just outstanding. Uh, Rod Schweitzer was very cool in this film uh, as the lead, quote-unquote, good guy. And then Julie Strain, Melanie Good, Priscilla Huckleberry were awesome. Um, Barbara Niven was great. Um, and uh, Carol Cummings was great. Um, and then uh, the rest were, were just all great. Uh, so the acting is spot on. However, the film is a tongue-in-cheek, over-the-top horror slash horror comedy. Um, the film was made in seven days, they said, and they had some issues with, with some of the, the people behind the camera, but because of um, the amount of time they had on the film, they didn't have anybody to, to replace it, so uh, Adam Rifkin said that he kept people on. For example, there was one camera woman who uh, felt the film was offensive, and so she kind of sabotaged certain scenes, uh, but they kept her on because there was no time to replace her. Um, There's some other funny uh, anecdotes that I'll talk about later because there is some uh, nudity in the film, and um, the editor, uh, I forget his name, but he's in the documentary, comes on and discusses how he brought the um, the core, the group of editors on to help out, so it'll be him, and then he had a couple of underlings under him, and when they first saw the dailies, um, or, or, or the stuff that they started to have to edit, they were kind of shocked, because uh, some of the scenes, uh, as I stated, uh, have a lot of nudity in it, so they actually thought they were doing a porn film at first, before they were, were told otherwise, uh, so, uh, some funny little, uh, things, um, behind the scenes uh, now uh, this film here uh, my personal opinion of it, it's 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 a great film uh, vinegar syndrome comes through every so often um, like I said they release four to six films uh, a month uh, unfortunately um, two or three are usually of the adult nature and when I say adult nature I don't mean sexploitation films or horror films but specifically um, blue films or adult or pornography films uh, from the heydays, uh, you know, the 80s, 70s, uh, and so forth. So, uh, weeding through those, because um, I will obviously do not want to buy those and have them in uh, a house um, of a married man with children. Um, uh, and, and fortunately, Vinegar Syndrome is excellent uh, if you want to call, um, not call them, but uh, email them. They respond quickly. Monthly, I usually email them asking which are not uh, X-rated films uh, because I do only want to par purchase their um, R and NC-17 and PG films or PG-13 films. So basically anything from horror to sexploitation to exploitation to cult films, uh, I'm always interested in checking out. Um, now, uh, what what it is is that out of those those four to six films they release monthly, a lot of times they have gems, and when I say gems, I mean great midnight movies that I will rewatch over and over, uh, meaning you know once or one or two times a year. Um, so I'll, they'll be in the rotation, in other words, since I do have so many films uh, that I need to watch or I want to rewatch. So for example, um, Luther the Geek. Um, pigs are two examples of, of hidden gems that 
I had no idea, never heard of them before, decided to take a chance on them one day, and boom, they were like fantastic films, great horror or midnight movies. Uh, as I reviewed in one of the prior Halloween boutique psychotronic reviews, uh, Raw Force is another one that uh, I watched uh, and was like blown away how fun of a horror film or midnight movie film it was. This here, Psycho Cop Returns, is right there with the rest of them. This is uh, a top-notch horror f comedy midnight movie. Uh, it's hilarious. The, the kills are incredible. Um, that, which is what you want in a uh, horror slasher film. Uh, it's loaded with over-the-top uh, nudity and um, crazy scenes. Um, it's just, just a, a great film all around to watch uh, if you look at it as a midnight movie um, and such. So this film here is basically uh, takes place in an office building. Um, it's uh, a Two guys set up a bachelor party for their friend, and a third guy joins in, and he brings the booze, and they're going to have it after hours um, at their office. And what happens is um, a bunch of folks decide to stay after. Uh, there's a, a man and a woman who are married who are having an affair, so they stay after work uh, and go to a different floor to do what they're supposed to do. Uh, if you know what I mean. And uh, one of them is played by Carol Cummings, who uh, I did research on, and she actually was um, a big-time or fairly famous adult film actress uh, who dabbled in mainstream or B-movie films such as this one. Um, and you get to see her in all her glory. Uh, then we have another woman who's simply working late, uh, and that's um, played by Barbara Niven uh, as a character, Sharon Wells. Uh, she's most certainly the, the most attractive woman in this film, um, but um, and all the women in this film are absolutely gorgeous. Um, uh, this one, two, three, four, five of them, and they're all incredible. Um, and Barbara Niven just happens to be stuck after work, working late. Uh, to finish a, a project. Um, and then we have uh, the f these four guys, the um, three guys that set up the bachelor party and the guy that's getting married, plus um, uh, a guard at the door. And his character was great. Uh, I think his name was Gus. And um, what happens is they have the booze, and then they bring in three strippers. Um, so it's basically a bachelor party, you know, typical thing, but they do it in uh, the office. Uh, maybe in 1993 that was possible nowadays. I don't think so. Um, and the three strippers are played by Jul Julie Strain, Melanie Good, and Priscilla Huckleberry. Um, and uh, just as Carol Cummings and Barbara Niven, these women are incredible. Um, and you get the, the strip teases and, and whatnot uh, in this film. And um, what happens is uh, Officer Vickers has overhears uh, two of the, the guys that are setting up the bachelor party, including the lead actor, Lawrence, talking about it at a diner. And 
he's like it's a, I guess there's a backstory from the first film that he's possessed by um, Satan, I guess, or something, or 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 is a devil worshiper or whatnot. But he's also a moralist, and so he wants to kill anybody who is immoral in his eyes. And so he follows these guys back to the the place that um, they're having, you know, the office building, and he gets in. Um, obviously through the front door, talks to the, the the security guard, and then hell breaks loose. Um, so we have, um, I, I did want to mention that uh, Priscilla, Priscilla Huckleberry, one of the, the actresses that played the stripper, is actually, um, that was a stage name, her name is Maureen Flaherty, um, I've noticed, um, and it appears that uh, um, that was um, earlier in her career. Um, now uh the the characters all the characters that i mentioned so there's there's the carol cummings and the other the guy that she's having an affair with there's the four guys that are at the bachelor party there's the three strippers there's barbara niven working late and then there's the security guard all of them are fairly well developed and all of them are, even though this is a slasher film and yeah you're going to have your your body count um, honestly, I, I, I was, um, surprised that some of the characters that seemed like they were going to be throwaway characters were not throwaway characters at all. Uh, they lasted a hell of a long time, and at points I actually thought they were going to survive. Uh, it's fairly obvious who is the survivor girl at the end, or was go is going to be, um, but it appeared that a handful of others could have survived as well. And so um, I thought that was good. So there was enough suspense to make me wonder who uh, was going to live and who was not. Um, the character of Officer Vickers is great. Um, he is a great villain. Uh, one of the best villains I've seen in any horror film. Uh, I can understand why they originally signed him to a, the actor to play a five-picture deal because he most certainly... Um, was was an interesting and fun horror villain, and what they what I see in the character here, I assume they had seen also, uh, because it it wouldn't have surprised me that this series could have gone on further. Um, what other things of note I wanted to bring up? Uh, this is, I believe, the first film of note for Julie Strain. Uh, I don't think it's her debut film, but it's the film that probably made her um, fairly popular because it's the same year that she became uh, Penthouse Pet of the Year. So um, the film obviously has a number of, um, uh, I guess, points for that because that's that, you know, a lot of people, um, she, she had a big following before um, disappearing. Uh, from the limelight a few years ago. Um, what else of note? Um, oh, Melanie Good. Uh, she has done numerous roles, uh, small parts. Uh, I know she was in the, had, had a small part in uh, the Howard Stern film Private Parts. Um, I, I'm not too familiar about some of the films she's done, but um, she actually was uh, interviewed in the documentary. Uh, Barbara Niven was as well. Um, and, um, 
uh, as I said, a number of other actors, especially the, the male leads. Um, so this this is a high recommend. This is a damn good disc. Um, it doesn't have as many extras as other films that Vinegar Syndrome has released, but it does have a, a director's commentary. It does have a 50 to 55 minute documentary, and then of course it has various other things like trailer and and stuff like that. But um, the documentary is absolutely fantastic, and the um, the commentary I listened to just a bit so far, and that that's really good with with the director. Um, and then the most important thing of all, the film. The film is a blast, absolute blast. Um, it's, it's it's kind of funny. Um, uh, they get how they get things to happen. Like like obviously you have um, strippers. So so as people are running around the building trying to survive, you have scantily clad woman along with uh, the other survivors um, trying to get out of the building because they're on a seventh and eighth floor and things like that. So so it 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 answers all your questions, uh, even if it is a tongue in cheek over the top film. So there really isn't plot issues uh, there's one kill that's really cool and the aftermath is really cool with a pentagram and all this other stuff which you have to see see it um but once again this film is a blast um great film high recommend um the disc is available anywhere plus you can get it at vinegar syndrome.com i had never seen the film i didn't know anything about the film it's a shot in the dark and uh, I was pleasantly surprised to note uh, that uh, some of the actors in the film, like Julie Strain, since I've seen a number of her films prior, and and um, and, uh, and so forth. So, um, uh, great time, uh, great fun, and a high recommend. Okay, the movie that I'm going to discuss is actually from uh, a small label that is what we would call a legendary in the cult film, Midnight Movie Extravaganza. As we know, Roger Corman has uh, done numerous films for years. I mean, all the way back to the 50s when he wrote uh, the film The Fast and the Furious. However, uh, he has a production companies, numerous companies throughout the years, and such famous directors as Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, Jonathan Demme, James Cameron, and of course the actor and part-time director Bill Paxton, among others, have come through his um, machine, so to speak. Uh, however, Roger Corman is not the only one to have done this. Uh, there's a few other folks. Uh, Charles Band of Full Moon uh, is one person of note. And the other is uh, the company called Troma. Uh, Troma is a company out of New York City owned by two folks. Uh, Lloyd Kaufman is probably the most famous of the two folks simply for the fact that he uh, does most of the interviews and tries to be the face of the company uh, while... Um, the co-owner of the company is uh, a man that has done uh, numerous films, um, directed and so forth, and uh, his name is Michael Hertz, and uh, he has publicly stated 
that he tries not to uh, do many interviews or uh, or any of that because he's a man that uh, pretty much likes his likes his privacy. Um, however, uh, the point I'm trying to make here is that uh, Troma has had numerous uh, directors as well that have come through uh, and uh, made something of themselves. And the one person of note for tonight's review, or at least a review for this one film here, is a man named James Gunn. And uh, James Gunn uh, is one of those folks that people may know specifically from uh, such movies as Guardians of the Galaxy and Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which is coming out uh, this year, 2017. Uh, and the movie, as we know, has become a huge success. Uh, the first one, uh, one of the biggest blockbusters in the Marvel category through Disney. And James Gunn has now become um, an important figure in Hollywood. Um, however, prior to all that, he came through the trauma system. Um, his, other things that he's done, uh, he wrote uh, the screenplay or partly wrote the screenplay for Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, which is one of my personal favorite uh, zombie films and horror films within the last 20 years. Um, he has uh, done such films as um, Slither, which uh, was a not a huge success at the box office, but uh, was well received and has become uh, a cult classic. Um, he uh, did uh, the Belko experiment, where he wrote the screenplay for that and uh, gave the director reign to Greg McLean, uh, mostly known from uh, the films uh, Wolf Creek and Wolf Creek 2. Um, but um, he got his start uh, with a screenplay for a film called Tromeo and Juliet. And that's the film I'm going to uh, talk about a little bit here. Um, basically, this is a film from 1996. It was written, as I stated, by uh, James Gunn and co-written with Lloyd Kaufman. Uh, the film was produced by Michael Hertz and Lloyd Kaufman. And the film was directed by Lloyd Kaufman. Um, the film has uh, some, oddly, mostly folks that aren't well known um, in the in the lead acting roles. It has pulled a couple of um, people out of it that have become, uh, I guess, somewhat um, have a large cult following, and that would be Tiffany Shepis and Debbie Rochon, two folks that have uh, become scream queens um, and have, have some note. Uh, in uh, horror, horror uh, communities, uh, they've gone to conventions and whatnot, and are very good to the fans. Uh, both are uh, quite good-looking women who uh, do have a large following. Um, otherwise, uh, the leads of the film—I've never heard of any of them, honestly. Otherwise, uh, but I'll name some of their names um, and what they play. Um, uh, let's see here. Will Keenan plays Tromeo uh, Q. Jane Jensen plays Juliet Ka Capulet. And uh, let's see. Maximilian Sean plays Lord Capulet. 
and so forth. Now, there's others, I, I, but again, none of these names mean anything to me because I've never seen them prior and don't really know too much about them otherwise, so um, no need to, to uh, list them off. If folks are curious, they can always just go to IMDB or Wiki or where have you and check out um, the, the credits. But uh, let me read the back jacket of uh, the disc. Uh, this is actually a Blu-ray uh, edition of the film. Um, it is the, called the Unrated Director's Cut. It is um, a film that I was able to pick up at a, a horror convention called Rock and Shark, which takes place in Worcester, Massachusetts during the October months. Uh, it's a yearly convention. And Troma always has a table and uh, they have a pretty good deal there where if you buy six or seven or something like that nature five maybe I, I can't remember uh, you get all the discs for ten bucks a piece or you get two free or something like that but it's a really good deal and uh, so this year uh, I decided to take a chance because I had not uh, seen really any trauma films prior to uh, my purchase of the disc from the trauma table in 2016 near Halloween. Um, and what I did was uh, I bought mostly their Blu-ray editions because they do have uh, obviously numerous films, dozens of films, but I decided to just go with uh, what they had that was Blu-ray uh, and I thought that was a good place to start. And uh, Tromeo and Juliet was one of the films that I uh, picked up. And this is what it says in the back. It says, See Shakespeare the way he was meant to be seen. The Tromer Way, directed by Lloyd Kaufman and written by James Gunn, Tromeo and Juliet moves the classic tale of star-crossed lovers from 16th century Verona to a crumbling mid-1990s New York, where young Tromeo and Juliet must defy their family's endless feud in order to be together for eternity. Set to a kick-ass soundtrack featuring Motorhead, Sublime and the Wesley Willis fiasco, Tromeo and Juliet is the most over-the-top erotic action comedy since Romeo and Juliet debuted on the stage in 1596. Uh, so that's the the back jacket, and um, I guess that's that's a fair fair um, uh, blurb for the movie. Um, it is uh, a very strange movie. Uh, back when it first came out. In the 90s, there was a lot of buzz about it, and uh, I heard about it here and there, but I, I was not too familiar, and I basically w wasn't into cult films really at that time, and specifically when they named it Tromeo and Juliet, I felt it was just a cheap way to market uh, Troma, the company, and I didn't even know what much about Troma, nor did I know anything about um, uh, what they did. So it was just one of those things that I heard about here and there through uh, the group of friends I had at the time, but um, I paid no attention really to it. Uh, but now that I'm into uh, a lot of cult films and midnight films and horror films and all those things, um, it, it once again reappeared on my radar, especially when I saw it on sale at the convention. Um, now, uh, the film's uh, uh, a very interesting film in the sense that James Gunn, now that he's known as a PG-13 Marvel 
director. Um, it, it's it's quite different from from that. Uh, this is a hard NC-17 film for sure, just for the fact of uh, the nudity and the um, the the pretty pretty graphic. Uh, though pretend, obviously, uh, sex scenes and things. Uh, but the film does have a n number of violent scenes as well. Um, but the violence is, is fairly, you know, R-rated violence. Um, but but it's really the, the nudity and, uh, I guess, to quote-unquote softcore sex scenes is what I guess they would call it, um, would make it a hard NC-17. Um, and James Gunn, uh, as we know, uh, based off of his film Slither, um, and, oh, and that's right, he did a film called Super, which was a, a pretty violent film as well. Um, he's he's pretty insane. Um, uh, his films prior to Guardians of the Galaxy, Family Fair, that that those are. Um, so so this this is just um, where you could say he started. Uh, obviously, he's a big fan of cult and midnight movies, based off of uh, uh, his his um, movie biog biography, basically super. Uh, Tromeo and Juliet, uh, Dawn of the Dead, and Slither alone shows that uh, because they are both cult films as well as midnight films. Um, and um, this film does have what I guess some folks would say is a trauma feel, meaning uh, a little bit of oddball comedy, yet comedy that isn't truly juvenile and actually does work. Um, it's not comedy that we would see in um, uh, typical Hollywood fare, but uh, it's not the stupid independent uh, comedy that you would see in uh, dozens of cra crappy or B films that you would, you know, catch on on Netflix, for example. Uh, so this is this film is actually quite well done. Uh, it has an excellent uh, uh, budget for an independent film. Uh, I believe it was only made for 450000 but that may be the most expensive trauma film ever, is what I believe I read. Um, and with that money, they were able to make a pretty damn good uh, film, or at least a film that looks pretty damn good. Um, now, uh, basically the story is about uh, two folk uh, as we said, Tromeo and Juliet, from two competing families, basically what happens, it, we learn, is the f two fathers of the families, or the two patriarchs of the families, were, were um, well, they, they, they owned a company together. Uh, and they, it's funny, in the movie, they, they say it's a art house movie. Uh, company, but um, you could also say that it was a adult film company. And uh, what happens is, is uh, uh, Juliet's father uh, cheats with Romeo, uh, Romeo's father's wife, and um, for some reason, Romeo's father uh, sells out his share of the company and uh, becomes. Um, uh, basically a, a person um, with mental health issues, i.e. meaning um, alcoholism. Um, and so th through the years, the, the two families fight continuously um, in what appears to be um, Manhattan. Uh, I, I think they 
it's obviously New York City, but I think they specifically state a lot of the film takes place in Manhattan. Um, and and really, that's that's what happens. It, it's it's arrivals of the two families. They they unfortunately meet up and intersect uh, a lot at parties uh, in the neighborhood, uh, things of that nature, um, and. As a result, there is a lot of uh, violence that occurs between the two families and numerous uh, injuries and um, vandalism and eventually, uh, as we will see in this movie, uh, deaths of members of the families directly or indirectly responsible by uh, the opposing family. So um, that's where the violence comes in. Uh, and, and the violence is pretty... Uh, insane. Um, now, uh, um, the movie itself, obviously I'm not going to go into the full plot and how Tromeo and Juliet meet and all that and whatnot, but uh, the film itself is um, a pr pretty good film uh, for, what it, for what it is, because I, I was going in with little expectations, because um, I haven't really been a fan of uh, comedic cult films as much as uh, horror and uh, grindhouse and dark films and all that. So uh, I was going in expecting to like it but not uh, enjoy it. Um, but uh, I have to say that I actually did enjoy it a lot and will rewatch it in the future and add it to my rotation of films uh, to watch every so often. Um, the the uh, story was interesting it kept me engrossed um it um had um characters that that you can actually like and um not despise uh, the villains are a bit over the top um to the point where they are what we would say um uh i guess misogynistic uh, violent towards uh, not only men but uh, but women as well. Um, there are, um, I guess, um, sexual attacks at points. Uh, not, nothing. Uh, it's sounding like like it's it's fairly bad, but but it's uh, nothing over the top or insane. The reason this is an NC-17 film is not for those reasons. It's specifically for um, the pretty hot sex scenes that um occur in the film so um one 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 could say that that um the violence and the adult nature of the dark themes to the film aren't necessarily the reason this film would be uh uh nc-17 uh, by any means it's they, they would just simply be the reason why it's not appropriate for children um now the it's the curious thing is that within the first twenty three minutes there were at least six women or uh nude um and there was uh a death uh that was pretty insane uh where a person is slammed against a fire hydrant so as you can see based off of that this is a this you know if if that all happens within twenty three minutes and so you get one crazy death and six nude scenes in twenty three minutes you know we're talking three to five minutes uh every three to five minutes you you have something that's that's a midnight movie grindhouse craziness um 
so so this this most certainly fits into a psychotronic film um now uh uh the disc itself um i got i gotta say uh trauma i i assume takes pretty good care of their films especially the ones that they make themselves they're known to uh not only uh produce and release films uh but they also are a um uh, releasing company too so they what they do is they buy the rights of films from conventions and uh, film festivals and release them under the trauma name um, but specifically uh, the ones that they own especially their jewels uh, the Tromeo and Juliet would be considered one of their more famous films um, it's in fantastic condition and being on blu-ray it's it looks really really good um, it's, it's curious where the film, usually a lot of these uh, high-definition films or theater-looking films have the black bars at the top and bottom of the screen. Uh, this actually has the black bars on the right and left of the screen. So the screen uh, or the picture is, is more of a box shape rather than a rectangle. Um, and... Uh, I know this technical thing, you know, the 16 by 7 or, or 1 by 88 or something. I don't, I don't know what they are. I'm, I'm not quite familiar with, with them, even though I've, I've read these in specs many times. Uh, so I, I can't give the specifics, but folks who know that will probably know what I'm talking about. But um, basically the screen of the film fits on the old TVs from the 80s and 90s uh, rather than the flat screen TVs. So that's why you have the bars on the right and left. Um, and that's probably how the film may have been released. Uh, I'm not sure if it was a VOD film or, you know, direct-to-video back in the day, uh, a VHS tape, and that's how it was released. And so that's why it has the um, the box shape rather than the rectangular shape of, of a lot of um, films presented on flat-screen TVs. Uh, but all in all, no matter, um, for the quality of the picture... Uh, it's it's most certainly fantastic, for, especially for a film that's uh, now um, 21 years old. Um, and when I bought it, uh, obviously it was, it was tw uh, 20 years old. Uh, it, man, the disc doesn't say the 20th anniversary, uh, even though um, you could argue that maybe it was based off of um, the fact that I bought it last year and it was the 20th anniversary. Um, now, uh, other items uh, about the film. Uh, the 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 disc itself uh, the blu-ray um yeah the, it's it's pretty damn good it, it's it's has a lot of extras i gotta say and not only extras uh that are trauma related but they actually have james gunn here james gunn uh did a lot of the stuff uh he does a a, a commentary track he does a 10 minute uh intro for the film which is a little bit humorous, um, basically uh, making jokes about how a film from 1996 uh, in HD looks completely different. Uh, so, for example, they say uh, this is they show a clip of the film and they say this is uh, the lead actor in uh, SD. However, let's meet the the lead actor now in HD. And then they what it is is they bring out. An, a very attractive uh, woman and, as a joke and say, here's the actor uh, in HD. So it's, it's, it's a bit cute and funny, uh, but the, the thing that makes it 
uh, most interesting is James Gunn himself uh, does it. And uh, there's four commentaries for the f for this f um, uh, release. Um, there's a, a cast and crew commentary with Lloyd Kaufman, uh, writer James Gunn, uh, editor of the film Frank Reynolds, and uh, co-star of the film Sean Gunn, who is actually James Gunn's brother and can be seen uh, most recently in the Belko experiment. Um, there's interviews with cast and crew, uh, including uh, Tiffany Shepis, Debbie Rashawn, uh, Sean Gunn, and Lemmy. Yes, Lemmy. Uh, I'm I'm not a fan of uh, the the band Motorhead, um, and I know that Lemmy, uh, the lead singer of that band, uh, has passed away in the past few years. Uh, untimely death. Uh, I'm not sure why. Uh, maybe maybe smoking because of his voice. I have no idea. But rest in peace. Um, he actually has. Uh, he would be called, I guess, what they call the Greek chorus for the film. Uh, Greek chorus meaning um, an individual that comes on every so often to uh, set up scenes. Um, so he has um, a role in this where he introduces the film. Um, concludes the film and introduces each act because again this is uh, interpretation of a Shakespeare play with acts and so uh, they try to follow that in the film uh, part of the I guess quote-unquote running joke um, and so yeah he has an interview as well on the disc um, there's some other funny things too like fan uh, reenactments of the, of the most famous scenes um, so, you know, th when this film came out, it, it got a lot of um, interest, and similar to Rocky Horror Picture Show, uh, a lot of fans uh, would, would reenact things. Um, other stuff, too, uh, Lloyd Kaufman, video diary of James Gunn's uh, film Slither. Um, Getting Hostel with Hollywood, James Gunn and Lloyd Kaufman visit Eli Roth's birthday party. Uh, and then they have trauma extras, too, including... Um, mini films um, and trailers for other films and things of that nature. Uh, so the disc is absolutely loaded with extras. I mean, four, to have four commentaries alone is is absolutely splendid. Uh, but to top off all that, the fact that there's commentaries and whatnot is the fact that James Gunn, uh, a, a modern Hollywood legend in a sense, um, has come back and participated in a disc uh, for uh, one of his good friends, Lloyd Kaufman, who helped him uh, become the, the person he is today, and, and, and Michael Hertz, for that matter. So um, that's pretty cool because, um, you know, how it is where once a person jumps ship and becomes famous, they ignore their roots, and James Gunn most certainly does not uh, ignore their roots, uh, his roots. So that's that's pretty impressive, and uh, and he seems like a pretty funny guy based off of uh, what I saw and heard from him uh, here. But uh, he's he's known to do some funny skits on on YouTube as well, uh, where folks can uh, go check that out too. Um, the disc is uh, under twelve dollars, which is pretty damn good for a Blu-ray presentation. Um, you can find that on Amazon, you know, those places and whatnot. Uh, 11.89 is how much uh, you can get it there, um, brand new. Um, 
and uh, it is qualifying for for free shipping uh, for some folks uh, who have uh, various memberships with Amazon. Um, so I, that's pretty much it. I mean, uh, not much else to to go into detail with. Uh, but the film is a fun film. Uh, it's filled with blood and guts and boobs and and nudity and all that. So it's unbelievably um, uh, specific to the midnight films, uh, and it is definitely worth uh, checking out for anybody who likes uh, midnight movies. Um, and and it could be a good place to start for trauma films I would think uh, again I haven't seen many trauma films I've seen I think two or no three released through trauma and a handful that vinegar syndrome uh, the other boutique company has re-released um, uh, where they you know got the rights to, to release them and remaster them and whatnot so uh, I've seen a few of them and they're pretty damn good um, and this this one if you want to figure see the trauma humor th this is a pretty good place to start I would say um, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, the film Tromeo and Juliet, and, uh, released through the Troma themselves, their boutique label, and, uh, yeah, uh, I recommend. Okay, so that is episode four of Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews. I was originally planning to do six movies, however... I, I think I went a little bit over on uh, the Anna Biller film Viva, so I figured that five would be good for this episode. Uh, thank you for listening. I do uh, appreciate any feedback. So far, I've been getting feedback uh, monthly for each episode. So if you would like to give feedback, you can go to uh, darkdiscussions at AOL.com where you can uh, email me personally and uh, let me know what you think um, or any suggestions and so forth. Uh, the films that were chosen this month were, again, total uh, coincidence. Basically grabbed the films on my pile uh, that I have, randomly chose them, and decided to review them after watching them. Some of them are more recent as uh, they're playing with Fire and Phantom Killer were because they both were just within the past month or so uh, and just happened to be near the top of my interest list and so that's the reason why they were reviewed um, uh, rather than some of the older films that I may have uh, meaning within the past couple of years uh, but uh, I'll probably get to some of them as well and so uh, Next month, I hope to have episode five. Uh, this one came out maybe two weeks later than usual. I had uh, other items. Uh, life basically sometimes uh, gets to uh, change plans without notice at any time. But I do hope to have another episode of Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews within the next three to five weeks. And until then, listen to Dark Discussions on the Dark Discussions podcast Facebook group. You can comment. And uh, we are on iTunes and Stitcher. And this episode, Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews, Volume 4, will also be under the Dark Discussion podcast feed. So just search iTunes or Stitcher for Dark Discussions podcast, and you will find us there. And Dark Discussions podcast is a weekly 
podcast. So until the next episode of Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews, you can listen to us discuss on Dark Discussions Podcast a new genre film and our thoughts and our critique on uh, the latest and greatest in horror, science fiction, thrillers, techno-thrillers, mysteries, and midnight films. Until next time, take care.